want to read from verse 17 through verse 24 in 1 Corinthians 7. This is what the word of the Lord says. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, each one should remain in the condition to which he was called. Were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called as a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, therefore let him remain with God. I invite you to pray a specific prayer about, this is Paul's writing about living as you were called, being content with where God has placed you. And so I didn't just invite you to ask God for true joy in Christ as we pray together. And I'll pray for us collectively. Father, we do praise you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Help us now as we learn and glean from it. And Father, I do pray that we would have joy in Christ for those that do not know him, that they would experience his invitation to come to him this day and respond to it in faith. And for those of us that do know him, that we would live in that joy and the hope that we have in Christ, and we pray all of these things in his wonderful name, and all God's people said. If you're like me, you can identify with the fact that many a times do we daydream and kind of drift off into thinking what our life would be if we would have made different decisions maybe in the past, or maybe if we find ourselves in situations that are uncomfortable or they are producing a lot of friction and tension in our life, we want out of those situations, and we would like to be free from those things. And so much is the nature of our attitudes at times. And so when we come to a text like this, Paul writes about our assignment as believers. Now, what is that? It's your life. It's your purpose. It's your calling. It's your state. It's only for you. And as we read through Psalm 139, by God's design, he's known all the days and all the numbers of them. And it's for you to complete and follow through on. And all that is needed is provided, and nothing can be different than it is for you right now. You see, I am where I am, and you are where you are because it's where God wants you. And from there, we can follow Jesus and obey him fully. So it begs the question, so why do I want to exit all the time? Does that make sense? Why do I want to step out from where God has called me, all the circumstances that surround my life, and I want to exit those and step out and, as we know, hop the fence. After all, the grass is greener over there. Or if I can't see it because the fence is too high, it has to be. You and I can identify with that, can't we? You and I are creatures that when circumstances are challenging or difficult, we assume that something must be better over there, and we'll try our best to get over there. All the while, Paul is 
exhorting the church in Corinth to stay where God has called you. He knows every detail of your life. And I spoke this to some ladies last week, and they said, if I would have heard a sermon like that last week about marriage and singleness, my life would have been different. And my response was this, it wouldn't have been. Because if God is sovereign every day that you have before you right now, and I do realize we have human responsibility, but you're exactly where you need to be and are called to be right now to move forward in what God has for you. And so trust in that. This morning, I want to challenge us all, as Paul is challenging me, first and foremost, with contentment in life, which what that means is to truly be happy and joyful in our moment-to-moment life as it goes by. In all the moments, Paul calls for contentment. And I don't know about you, but I struggle in this. And if you ask our other elders, I'll share it often. One of my, we talk amongst elders and we pray for one another and I say, what is the, the sin areas, the temptation? And it's content, discontentment for me a lot. And I find myself at times discontent over circumstance and situation. And so two questions I'd invite you to ponder with me this morning is one, am I content with where God has me in life right now? Whatever that looks like, whatever your family situation is, whatever your marriage looks like or non-marriage if you're not married, whatever your job situation looks like, whatever your economic status looks like, am I content with where I am in life right now? I think all of us can relate to that. And the second one is if I'm not, which many of us aren't, what steps will I take to get to find, take to find contentment in my circumstance? And my goal would be to encourage you in the word today. I want to start by reading this story of um, a, a young mom that many of you knew. She was at Real Hope for a while. Tori Hennig was a young mom here, and many, some of you know her, some of you don't. Um, she battled cancer. She was young, um, 30 years old, around there, had a young child um, named Willie, was married, um, and she went home to be with the Lord in May 2014 after a long battle with cancer, and her faith was strong. Don't get me wrong, she wasn't perfect, but what I admired about her most was her willingness to accept where she was and what God had called her to, her contentment. She didn't like it. Why would she? She would be leaving the love of her life. She would be leaving her child, her mom, her dad, her brothers, not to mention friends and church family. But as I was thinking about her, I looked back and I read this post that came up from her old Facebook post. I just wanted to start uh, with this story because I think we can relate And I think it's encouraging. She says this from before, um, during her journey with cancer. She said, I developed some new symptoms last week that have left me pretty miserable. I have an appointment with my oncologist today at 2 p.m. This morning as I wait, I'm running all the possibilities through my head. All the best and worst case scenarios that could come out of this doctor's mouth. Brad and I have left his office before completely ecstatic However, we've also left before only to make it a few steps in the parking lot before crumbling into each other's arms crying. I have no idea what to expect. I can only anticipate and worry. Or is that true? This morning I started imagining all my worries, anxieties, and fears as a big pile of papers as if I've written them all out. They're a mess and they're heavy. And then I picture Jesus sitting at his office in heaven He's got this little shiny blue book. It has my name on it. It's complete. It's fully written and it's perfect. This is my life, my story, and it's so good. God has had this little Tory book forever. He wrote it and he's holding on to it, and I don't need to worry because my life is in his hands. 
So I'm taking my pile of worries, this giant stack of stress, and I'm bringing it to Jesus' office. I'm placing it on his desk. It's too, too much for me to carry around, but it's no big deal for him. In fact, he wants to hold it for me. He willingly takes all this mess from me and then shows me again this little book with my name on it. It's my life written so perfectly. I need not worry. And I feel peaceful. God is bigger than the doctor I'll see at 2 p.m. He's bigger than the disease. And he's already written the perfect story of my life. I'm trusting his amazing love. And then she writes this first. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Isaiah 26.3. She was full of cancer. And yet she was full of Christ. And therefore she was fully content. Because she had Jesus, all of circumstance in life didn't matter as much as that. They mattered. They were real. And your circumstance matters like mine does. They're real and they're challenging, but God uses them for purpose. And she was full of Christ and therefore full of contentment. You see, Paul interrupts his teaching in chapter 7 about marriage and singleness and relationships. And what he is urging for in the middle of that, because it's relevant to that, is for basic contentment in whatever situation God has called you to. Even if this includes, and most likely it does, friends, circumstances that are unpleasant, circumstances that would cause anxiety in a human body, circumstances that would be causing friction, and pain. And admittingly, again, I struggle with this just like anyone else, to be right where I am and believe that God has put me there. Paul starts his little section here in verse 17. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Did you see what he did there? There's a lot of profound things. He said, each one It's going to be different for everyone. You and I are creatures of comparison. We like to compare ourselves to the Joneses next door. And if you live next to the Joneses next door, I'm especially talking about you. Not everybody lives next to them, right? We like to do that. How much money they have, what stuff they have, if their kids are perfect. We do that in church all the time. Let's just be honest. You look at, if you're, if you have small kids, you look at everybody else's kids and be like, well, they don't struggle with sinful humanity like I do. Yeah, they're kids. They do. But we all compare. Well, I wish my situation was this. And Paul says, each one, it's going to look different. Your story is going to look different. Your stuff is going to be challenging and different than this one's over here. He says, each one, live a life that the Lord has assigned. It's right there for you. I chose Psalm 139 to read this morning throughout our worship because the Lord is sovereign. And he assigns for us purpose and it's unique to us and all the little details of life are by God's hand. When God says, I know the numbers of hair on your head and I don't know your days and all that stuff, I think he knows about all the stuff that you wonder if he knows about. God, did you know my job got terminated this week? Thinking of one brother. Did you know cancer entered my body and I have to struggle this way? Did you know this relationship was going to end this way with my mom, my dad, my family? Did you know this accident was coming today into our world at 2 p.m. and turned it upside down? He knew all of it. The Lord assigned all of it. And that's hard to believe and that's complex. I get it. But the Lord ordains all those days and all those moments for our purpose, for his purpose rather, and our good. 
And it says he has called. Now that's a huge word that Christians like to talk about all the time. Your calling, your calling. And what I find is that a lot of Christians wait for God to call them to something, which is right and good to a point, but they wait for like this miraculous calling. Like, when is he going to call me to this? And you're kind of looking out, wondering when God is going to call you to something. All the while, he's called you to something. Some of us like to graduate. And Paul was struggling with the Corinthian believers in that way. Some of them were trying to jump up a ladder or rung on the ladder, if you will, in spirituality and say, well, I think I'm meant for more. And, and Paul says, wherever you are, you can serve God with joy. You can be content. He said, in fact, it's my rule. All of us want to be rule followers, so we should read that in, in verse 17 and go, yeah, we should do that. Paul's reminding them that the way to please God was to trust in him where he had placed them. And we have to be obedient in that, and it takes active steps of obedience and trust in God. You see, his main objective was to remind the people of God that the key, listen, the key to making their present situation count was letting God change them daily and not their circumstance. Does that make sense? The key to letting God work and make their present situation known that he was faithful and with them was to let him change them, not their circumstances. And we live in a culture that we want our circumstances to change. All the while, God wants to change us and transform us in our circumstances. That is why we need Jesus. That is why he transforms us. That is why we are being conformed to his image. And you know, I can be discouraged in this life. I'm, I'm human like you. I have much to be thankful for. Don't get me wrong, much more than I deserve. But in my sinfulness, I just throw this pity party at times and whine about circumstance. And it's hard to be faithful and endure in that. It's hard to be faithful. It's exhausting at times. And I know many of you can relate where God has called you in different trials and concerns. It's hard to just be faithful and endure. And suffering is a part of our transformation. And just a brief word about pain and suffering. You need it to grow. You do. And so if you're always going to be someone that tries to dodge that and get out of that in your life, you're going to miss so much that God could do in you. And, and again, I don't like pain. Many of us don't. But I know that you need it to grow. And many people are going to be transformed in ways that they could have never done by, by their own means unless they have circumstances that are challenging. And I would even say a little bit further, I think you miss out on the potential that God has for you if you don't understand the weight and capacity by which God would use suffering as a means for growing you and transforming you. I think all of us as believers should know that. God is using it for his glory. The scriptures are full of references that talk about that. But now Paul is using two examples here relevant in the culture, in the text, and, and each calls for a radical approach in Christianity. And, and the examples are two, but they're relevant because they're written on circumcision and slavery. And I'm going to read those verses again and what Paul writes. Because you're like, what does that have to do with contentment? He said, was any at the time of his call already circumcised? His call there is the conversion when they came to Christ. And you have to remember that there were Jews and Gentiles that existed um, in the early church. Let him not seek to remove the marks. Was there anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, each one remained in the condition to which he was called. 
That first example, he's using there, and it seems very strange that he would use it, but you have to see that some people in the church in Corinth wanted to change their position. We talked about that in marriage. Some people who were in marriage relationships wanted to leave them because they thought being single was more spiritual. They weren't finding contentment there, and so they were ready to ditch their spouse. And Paul is saying, which is why it's relevant in chapter 7, he's saying you need to stay where you are. And to the Jew and the Gentile, he was saying the same thing. He was saying you need to stay where you are. You cannot be spiritually elevating yourselves out of what they thought were lower circumstances. A real life example of this is in ministry. A lot of believers believe if they're not in full-time ministry, they are somehow lower than those who are in vocational ministry. And that's not the case at all. Paul says, wherever you are, stay there. You see, the thing about Christians is no matter what you're walking through, a disability, a hardship, a handicap, in the context of the Jews and Gentiles, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, he's, the thing about being a Christian, about following Jesus, is you can do that anywhere. It transcends culture and race and circumstance and education and position, all of it. And so Paul is saying to the Jew and Gentile, all of that is transcendent. You can't add something outside of the gospel. God can use you wherever. Now, understanding what Paul is writing about circumcision is important. You see, it was an embarrassment to the Roman world. And some wanted to actually reverse it to fit in, in culture. And we know this was a term that represented both Jew and Gentile. So you could even take it to mean not by the physical, literal term of it, but just by the figurative for males and females. Some coming from Jewish origin and, and thinking they had some special blessing because that was the way God had told his people to identify themselves. And then the Gentiles who were new to the faith. And in many ways, and you see this in the New Testament, people looked at as not Jewish and therefore less spiritual. And Paul is addressing both of those groups He's saying circumcision could have been viewed this way as this extra spiritual blessing, and it didn't add yet spiritual significance or salvation to Christians, which is why Paul writes what he does in verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. He says wherever you are, and he's using this as an example, it doesn't matter if you are. Don't try to become something else, and if you're not, try to become something else. He's using this as an example. Because apparently in the church, there were people who were saying, I don't think this is where God's called me. I need to do this. That we can relate to. I don't think this is where God call, has called me. I need to do this. And I have to tell you, friends, that I meet with a lot of people in different counseling situations, some of you, and there's this nagging, like, I just feel like God wants me to do something more. All the while, he may be calling you to do exactly as you are doing. And some of you feel discontent because of your circumstance. I know this especially to be true of moms with young kids at home, feeling like I'm not making an impact or a difference. You have great influence over your children. Time to spend pouring, that is a ministry in itself. I watched my wife do it for years, and there were days where she was about to pull her hair out. Those days are long gone. <laughs> There's still days. But it's a ministry and a calling. Some of you have jobs that you feel aren't valuable at all. It can be a ministry and a calling. It can be where Jesus uses you for his glory in just profound ways. You doing really interesting nominal tasks in your mind that you think this is just, how could God ever use this? And he surrounds you with people and impacts you in different ways that you wouldn't even know. But you can't always want to escape that. Paul speaks the same about slaves. As he continues on, he says, don't be concerned about it. 
in verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? You see, that was a cultural thing. People had slaves and people had masters. And Paul wrote about it. It was not that it was right. It was just that they had them as a part of their culture. And they thought as slaves then, well, I must want to be free from that if I'm truly going to be used for God. And he said, no, stay where you are. He says, in fact, do not be concerned about it. If we would speak that to one another in the church, right, when we have our struggles, I feel like, God, don't be concerned about it. God can use you where you are. That doesn't mean if you're young or old, a student, not a student, some job that you think is just a nine-to-five deal, just a cash, a paycheck, whatever it is, to someone who's like in Nigeria, trekking 150 miles. God says, whatever it is, don't worry about it. Let me be concerned about it. He says, if you gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. So if it comes along, great. But if it doesn't, don't worry about it. For he who has called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Do you see what he did there? God called that, ordained that. He said, you're actually free, and you'll always be free in Christ. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. So even those who are free have bondage and surrender and submission in discipleship to Christ. All of it aiming at serving the king. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And you know what, friends? I think we become slaves of men when we want to leap from our circumstance. Because somebody somewhere told us that the grass was greener. Somebody told us we should be doing this instead of this. And that's Paul's emphasis to, in these two examples, he says, wherever God has called you, you need to focus on pleasing him and not men. And he uses that illustration wisely. In verse 24, so he writes, whatever it is. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. When I see that word, for me, it reminds me of Jesus' words in John 15, 5, right? I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He is it that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That idea of abiding or remaining, that is why it is so important to have a daily relationship with Christ and his word. It's how we remain. And I find often it's when our circumstances get the better of us that we are out of that abiding relationship with Christ. You and I need heart work all the time. That's what that verse is about. That's about staying close to Jesus and letting him transform our thoughts and our actions and finding joy in him. And you and I need heart work all the time in our discontentment. And we should know that heart work is really hard work. It's not comfortable. It's surrender. It's letting go of the things that we wished could happen if. Wouldn't my life be different if? And all the while just trusting Christ in the middle of it. You and I need that reminder in in the importance of walking daily with Christ. And that's what Paul is reminding them, remembering that it is Christ who called them, and it is Christ that wants to remake them. I think of Ephesians 2.10, when Paul is writing this, and he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, comma, which God prepared beforehand. We should walk in them. If there's a verse that fits better, I don't know what it is, but Paul is writing both of these. He says it again. For we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. All these things that he called us to do, walk in them. Be content in them wherever God has called you. Friends, we need to know this, that any man or woman in Christ 
has been so remade that earthly status or lack thereof is completely irrelevant. That you and I in Christ have been so remade that any, I, like any position or, or career choice or label, like what do you do, what do you do, it's so irrelevant to how Christ has called us and remade us and uses us. That we should never use that as a, well, I only do this, but you're doing, no. The miraculous nature of salvation is somebody being transformed and conformed into the image of God by his grace, by the Spirit sanctifying us. And that remaking of us is so high above what we do. And God could use all of that for his good and glory. Now, Paul could speak about this subject because he understood. If you're sitting here and say, well, Paul just didn't understand what it is to live with unfavorable circumstances. He was imprisoned and beaten. When the time he's writing this letter, it was a challenging time for him in his ministry. And he learned to go with plenty and he learned to go with none, which is why he addresses the issue so frequently in the churches to encourage and we know this passage well on contentment in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, this is Paul writing, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, many athletes use that verse to achieve many athletic things, and many people use that verse to accomplish many things, but Paul is not writing about that in context. He's not making a touchdown or scoring a three-pointer here. He's saying, it is Christ who is going to give me strength in all the situations where I find discontentment. He alone will bring my contentment. That's what Paul is writing, and that's the verse in context that he's saying, it is Christ who strengthens me. So it doesn't matter what my circumstances are around me. It is Christ who gives me strength. It is Christ who I will honor and serve. It is Christ who is going to supply all that I need for his glory. Out of the abundance of the glory of his riches, that's what he's going to do. And so I ask you again, am I content with where God has me in life right now? And what steps, if I'm not, will I take to find contentment? What are we to do? I think Paul wants us to do three things and repeat them over and over again. So this is for you application people if you're paying attention. He wants you to rejoice, pray, and give thanks, and then do that over. And he writes about it in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 18. You know it well. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Friends, if you're looking for the answer to what is the will of God in my life, there's a couple verses that tell you. Some of us look beyond that, and all the while, Paul writes this. Here's the will of God. Do you want to know what it is? Rejoice, pray without ceasing, give thanks. You see, rejoicing is a genuine marker, joy, of a Jesus follower. Why are we joyful? Why are Christians joyful? Because we have the hope of Christ for a future in what he has done and what he will do. And if you don't know that, Christ came for you to give you that. He didn't come just to give you heaven. He came to give you the fullness of his joy on earth too. To know that you can have a relationship with him and walk with him. And you need to respond in faith to following him, saying that he's the only source of contentment that I'll ever know. And that invitation is for you today. 
And that's the marker. When you see Christians, they should be joyful because it's a marker of spiritual fruit. It is the fruit of the Spirit, and you need to be walking in the Spirit to bear this kind of fruit, which means you need to be keeping close, remaining, abiding, being in step with the Spirit that you should walk in them to be joyful. And many of us, and I saw this, Mimi probably did too, and I complain about the weather sometimes too. I'm not perfect. But you can be in the middle of winter with snow and be like joyful, or you can be in the middle of snow and be joyful. It doesn't matter. You're in the middle of snow. And winter clearly has set in in the Midwest. And Christians ought to be full of joy because it represents our hope. And Paul writes, rejoice always in whatever circumstance. And you know what else? Pray unceasingly, which means continually, being in constant fellowship with God through your circumstances. And friends, think of it this way. This is a mental attitude of prayerfulness at all times, being very aware of God's presence through the moments. And you know people like this who do this well because they're, they're mature, godly believers who trust in God's sovereignty and, and his word and his faithfulness. And, and when things come in and rattle them, I'm going to pray. I'm very aware that God knows about this. When things come in and they come out of left field and they smack us in the side and we're like, Where? I'm gonna pr- God knows about this. Whatever it is that comes out of nowhere, God, th- that's not a surprise. And so we stay in constant connection with God. We stay close. And so friends, if you're unhappy and discontent with circumstance, what you need is to stay close, to rejoice, to pray unceasingly. And then if these two first steps are successful, it ought to lead us to thanksgiving. Why? Because that awareness reminds us who God is and what he's done for us. It's like this, and I was thinking about this, and, and I know that you can relate to this experience. Sometimes I went back to Darlington, my old church family, for a funeral of a woman last Saturday, and I met bumped into an older couple that has just been such a godly influence on our life, and I bumped into them, and they were encouraging as always, and they shared wisdom as always, and they, just by being around them in their 80s, they shared their faithfulness and endurance as always, and I walked away, and I said, I'm just thankful for them, and it is like that when we go to God. When we spend time with Him, we walk away and say, I'm just thankful for that relationship. I'm just thankful that they have that, that, that God is faithful, that he's immovable, that he's never going anywhere, that I can approach him anytime. And this is what he did for me. He looked on me with favor, not because of my sin and selfishness, because I didn't deserve that. He looked on me with favor and grace in Christ. And he saved me, and he gave me a new life, and he gave me a new hope. For that, I ought to be thankful. That ought to check our perspective It kind of puts it in perspective when we realize what God has done for us. And it lowers all those other things. When we know the cross, our sin and shame gone, our ability to live in the kingdom now, our hope in heaven joyful, we ought to hit our knees and praise God. These three tracks, rejoice, pray unceasingly, give thanks, ought to be on repeat all all of our life, over and over, over and over. As I close this morning, I want to just read as I started with another story of encouragement, I want to read this story um, from 
Chris and Rebecca Vote are our missionaries in Chad, and Fiona talked about her aunt in Nigeria, and there's a lot of connections here. And I'm going to read this story. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to try to read it uh, well here about a man that he's asked us to pray for. And some of you have heard this if you follow his newsletters. Some of you have not. And this is about a young man, Bashura, that came from Islam, converted to Christianity. And, and this is a real story that we ought to be praying about. This man is named Bashura. He left Islam come to faith in Christ, and this is his situation as he's being discipled by one of Chris and Rebecca's trainers there. And I want to read this, and it can be a little graphic in nature, but it's the reality of those being persecuted in Christ. Here's what it says. These are two, tran- uh, two transmissions from this person describing the scene. What transpired with Bashar and his dad yesterday was a mix between New Testament narrative and a Wild West showdown at high noon. His dad basically wants to take his life for leaving Islam. When Bashar arrived at the house, he noticed a truck with military plates outside. This was an ominous sign that confirmed that the worst was, was going to happen when he stepped inside in the large salon in the house. His father was waiting for him along with his mother, uncle, sister, half-brother, 15 elders from the family's clan, two religious leaders, and two unknown men from a different tribe who were armed. His father, sitting before him, kept his pistol with silencer on the table next to him. The car, the strange men, and the silencer were all telltale signs that his dad was intending to kill Bashara. He confirmed as, soon, as much soon enough. After greeting him, he said, Why have you come, become an infidel and ruined our family's name? Our people have heard that my son has left Islam and the shame of it has spread throughout Chad and the countries around here. Before I shoot you, tell me why you have become a Christian. With that, Bashara began to tell his story, how he first received a Bible, how he first believed, and now that he is a Christian, how his mom was healed and is also a follower of Jesus. His mother followed these words up with her own. I've been healed and I'm a Christian and if you want me to stay with you, I'll stay with you. If you want me to divorce you, that's okay too, but I will not return to Islam. These words were remarkable, not only because she professed Christ, but for another reason. Bashara, along with his mom and siblings, had agreed that she would ask his father for a divorce. This is the timeliness. This just happened. Yesterday morning, Bashara read for the first time 1 Corinthians 7 about how believers should not seek to divorce their unbelieving spouses. Bashir took a photo of that passage yesterday morning and a WhatsApp, WhatsApped it to his mom. She read it, pondered it, and decided to change tack. This is huge as it kept more shame from coming on his father, who might have retaliated with uncontrollable violence. Why didn't you kill Bashir like I told you to, his dad said to his uncle. His uncle then recounted how he had tried to, but after firing two rounds at Bashir's head and seeing the cases hit the floor but not Bashir, he was afraid of what might happen next. He told Bashara's dad how he had been beaten, how he had beaten Bashara, torn up the Bible, and then was hospitalized, how he had a vision of angels, was evangelized by Bashara, and then himself believed. This was all news to Bashara's dad in that moment. Someone also mentioned that Bashara's sister and half-brother had also become Christians. When his father asked them point blank, they admitted that they too now were Christians. This is when things took a wild turn. The father picked up his gun to shoot Bashir. His uncle stopped him in his tracks by pulling out his own pistol and said, if you shoot him, no one is going to leave this room alive. After some reflection, his father chose another tactic. He ordered the henchman to take Bashir to the truck. Bashir's mom ran out of the room and came back with a large wooden tool and said, you touch my son and I'll crack your head open. 
Lots of arguing ensued, which took a good while to get everyone settled down. Once things calmed down, the father asked the clan leaders their opinion, and amazingly, their advice was that Bashura, like any other person, should have the right to choose what religion he would follow. That left his father fuming. It was then that the Islamic religious leaders turned to try to convince Bashur to return. Don't you fear God? They asked him, but his response was brilliant. He said, you've prayed, sacrificed a cow and sheep to, trial my, to heal my father's eye who was becoming blind. Were you successful? They had no answer as it was obvious that his father's left eye was still useless. Having heard enough, his father, enraged again, exclaimed that he was going to kill him. His uncle then replied, you keep saying you are going to shoot him, then do it. Bashir, walk up to your father so he can shoot you. Slowly, Bashir stood up and walked to an arm's length of his dad. You have ruined our family name and you are an infidel. His father repeated, I don't know what else to tell you. Bashir replied, you've disowned me. You can kill me, but I will die with Jesus. What else do you want from me? His father picked up his gun and then heard his mother weeping. If you kill our son, then kill me too. Then his sister and half-brother said the same thing. If you kill him, then kill us too. His uncle also joined them. You will have to bury us all today if you shoot him. His father, was, his father was a divided man. Everything in him wanted to wipe out the shame to his name that Bashir had brought. But then he risked bringing more problems and shame if he killed the others and might even lose his own life in the process. After a long pause, he uttered these words. No one saw coming. Give me a Bible. Shocked, Bashir handed his to him with two hands, and he received it with two hands. He looked at the front and the back and said, how do you read it? Bashir then approached his father and opened to Matthew 1. His father read for a bit and then closed it. I'll read, and then we'll talk. Leave now. And with that, he left. This was the last update we got, that his father had been reading the Bible, and he wanted to meet with him, and I'll close with this. He said, yesterday evening as I was texting with Bashir, the same vehicle with the military plates came with the same two men. His dad was insistent on having him pick them up. Bashir had already made up his mind that he would go with them. Two hours later, around 9 p.m., I received a brief text that he had finished eating with his dad, that there were the same three strange men in the room, and that he sent me a brief text saying that the situation didn't seem right. Until this morning at 7 over a text again, he recounted his meeting. His father tried both the carrot and the stick, First, he took out the equivalent of $10,000 and said it before him, if you come back to me, you can have this and all the rest of my inheritance to you. Bashir refused, and his father kept asking and insisting. Finally, out of frustration, his father slapped him in the face, and his father's plan did not work. Then his father told him to take, told the men to take him home, but it was really meant was an unknown location, which he's being guarded in ankle cuffs, locked up in a room, and being guarded by people he doesn't know. He was able to hide his phone on his person and so I have this short text exchange and we're asked to pray for him. I share that story both to pray for him as a church but also for us to have perspective of our problems, right? Here is a man who is claiming Christ at the cost of his life and he's willing to die with him because he has true contentment and joy in Jesus. Do you and I have that same thing we do? Do we know we do is a different question. If you are full of Christ, you are full of joy. Let's pray. But I want to read the last part of Psalm 139. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Have a blessed day, and go in peace.